Welcome back to 10 Questions. Today's guest is one of my favorite comedians, Lawrence Mooney. I love Lawrence for many reasons, but mostly because he says the things I dare not think. He's an actor, a writer, a stand-up, and of course a radio host. I've known him since we made the pilot for the Agony series back in 2010, and it was about 30 seconds into interviewing him that I knew we had a show, so I'm very grateful to him. Other career highlights for The Moon Man include The Tonight Show, Dirty Laundry Live, and hosting The Paralympics. And we talk about both of those things here. If you want to get some bonus content after this interview, head over to patreon.com forward slash 10 questions with Adam Zwar. And here Lawrence lists his three favorite beverages. And if you want to see all the gigs he's got coming up over the next four months around Australia, check out lawrencemooney.com. He's probably coming to a venue near you. So let's get into it with question one. How does Lawrence think his fellow workers would describe him? Okay. Um, I'm going to take that question and take it back to when I used to be a member of a cast. Because as a comedian, often you work alone. Um, You might be backstage with a group of comedians on a bill for a benefit or for a gala or something like that. And that's always a joyous experience because we're often well so often lone wolves that when you see comrades and compadres it's like this great embracing of one another we had a uh, a gig for a-list my management uh, organization a gala at the Enmore just before christmas and because people hadn't seen one another over that two-year period it was like war had ended and we were all embracing and kissing one another and there was this, you know such a loving exchange But just in that kind of cast scenario, I suppose I run that fine line, Suari, between um, a lot of fun and really annoying. (laughs) Because, you know, you're in a dressing room, you're trying to focus, you you want someone to distract you from the inherent pressures of going on stage. Uh, And so you need a little bit of lightness, but you need that to stop at some stage. And, you know, I've worked in a cast with you and you probably know it very well where the fun gets to a point where it's like, hey, Moon, enough, all right, just enough. And I I completely respect that boundary. You know, I've, <laughs> I've seen very relaxed people become <laughs> annoyed at what I've been, at the fucking around that I've been doing. So I, I get it. And, you know, it includes my brothers and includes... You and Sam Pang when I was working on the 2012 Paralympic Games for the ABC. And uh, so most cast, there's a lot of fun. And then it's like, Jesus Christ, this guy needs to really stop it. I actually found it quite relaxing. If I don't see fear in your eyes, then that makes me more, more relaxed. That what, what tenses me out is seeing someone else tense. Yeah. Well, when I was doing Dirty Laundry Live, because it was live, like live, live, at 9.30, you'd get the countdown in your ear and I'd be, dicking around with the panel because there's four people. Uh, it was always Brooke Satchwell and Marty Sheargold and then two others, often Zoe Coombs Ma, and then a fourth seat. And you'd be looking down to that fourth seat and you'd know that live, uh, sometimes people just, they go, and three, two, one, the titles would play, dirty laundry, and then it's like, you're up. And you'd say, welcome to the show and do your bit of a monologue. And then introduce, and you'd look along and see just deers in a headlight. Just people like, oh, my God, this is actually live. And so you would try and 
placate that situation rather than going, we're live very shortly. Are you going to be okay? <laughs> <laughs> and um, some people would be able to overcome that and others would just be lost to it. And you'd, you'd have to kind of, in, in, you'd include them a couple of times. You know, we, ha I'd have the, the great producer, Peter Lawler, in my ear saying, you know, another question for Barry or, you know, throw it Sally's way and you'd do it and they weren't firing. So eventually you just had to cut them loose and they'd shoot around them. Lawrence and I talked about how having stand-up experience can really help when you're doing live television and that it's particularly beneficial when you're appearing in the high-pressure environment of an awards show. When you look at, you know, I'll say Billy Crystal for the Academy Awards and Ricky Gervais for the Golden Globes, but Tom Gleason's opening monologue, uh, the year that he won gold, and his gold Logie speech was probably... Um, the best awards night bookend that I've ever seen. Like yeah. he opened the night and he said to his manager, Kevin White, you know, what if I win? And he said, we'll still have you as the opening monologue. And then he won and his speech was extraordinary because it took the breath out of the audience and then it brought them back. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it is it's quite an art. And that's the thing about stand-ups. Most of them are disciplined writers who understand that every story must have a point and an ending. Mark Pingilly used to say, uh, if we were backstage, brother of the famous Kurt Pingilly. Yeah. Mark Pingilly, great comedian, Mark. Um, and very underrated and very unknown too. Uh, he used to say, uh, G'day Lawrence, how are you? And I'd say, good. And he goes, rehearsing your spontaneity, mate. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's true it's clive james used to say rehearse spontaneous utterances yeah, yeah. um mark yeah. Pangilly, while I, I mentioned him he used to do word plays uh and one of his best word plays ever one of the best word play jokes i've ever heard he goes um uh there was a a survey recently of people of non-specific sexual predilection uh, who happened to be overweight. And by and large, they were by and large. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> what what state of mind do you need to be in to come up with that? That's It's yeah. like a crossword, I guess. It's and he used to do it. He'd go, uh, now some impersonations for you. And um, he'd turn his back on the audience. And then he'd turn back and he'd go, a bus driver. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I wonder where he is, Mark, because I really enjoyed his stuff. But, you know, it's it, it's so true of the biz that um, it's not a meritocracy. No. You know, some people who are great don't get elevated, um, you know, because it depends on management and then the artistic managers or the artistic directors of festivals and press and all that stuff. And it, it's, you know, some people in our biz go by the by and they're brilliant. Oh yeah. It's, it's, it's true. Look, I, I think a large percentage is, is, is what you do off, off screen or off stage. You know, it's who you're hanging out with. 
how much work you're doing behind the scenes and the effectiveness of that work. I mean, it's, you know, most who make it are just great producers of their own career. It's quite right because there's people that, you know, take this hard line artistic approach where they go, look, I'm an artist and I'm not going to, you know, compromise and I'm not certainly not going to do any of that sort of stuff. I'm not going to go and suck up to people and, and drink with people I don't like in order to get ahead. Well, guess what? You won't. Yeah, so, yeah. That's correct. That is very true. Um, question two, what's the most unhelpful feedback you've received? Um, oh, I did this gig once and and whenever you do a comedy gig, you know, uh, you know straight away whether you go well or you don't go well. There's two results when you do comedy. They laugh or they don't. <laughs> Uh, and most gigs, you know, um, I've been very lucky. I'm good at what I do. The yeah. audience is laughing. But, you know, in that room, if you're going to um, do an exit poll on everyone, there'd be someone who goes, I fucking hated that guy. Right. Yes. Okay. And so when you leave that venue, you don't need to know that. You, no. you know, you've done okay. You don't need somebody to come up to you, i.e. the guy that organised you as the comedian for his men's club where I do, you know, uh, a room of 500 people. And um, then I run into my friend Jim, let's call him, because that's his name, some months later and he goes, oh, mate, um, that gig was great. You know, you, uh, you crowned it. Um, you tore the room a new one, all that sort of stuff. He goes, but um, the president of the club hated you, so they're never going to have you back. <laughs> oh my god! I said, I don't, I didn't need to know that. And he goes, I'm just telling you for your own sake. It's like, no, no. All I know is that the gig went well, and most people loved me. Yeah, but you know, I'll tell you, I'll tell you what somebody said. So, you know, a third person report um, that this guy hated you. It's like, well, that's the only thing I'm going to remember about that gig now. So thank you. It's like, it's like working in radio. You can, your a program director can say you're on air for three hours and it's live and a lot of it's impro. They can give you ten points, positive points, but they give you one, and that's the one that sticks with you for the week. You mull yeah. over in your head. You, it becomes a mantra that you say to yourself in the toilet and in the car. You, it's the first thought you have when you wake up and it's the thing that eats away at you. I, I want to say to people that if they're going to give anyone feedback, think very, very carefully. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I'm, I'm having battles in my head all the time with people who are giving me inverted commas, helpful feedback. <laughs> yes. Helpful feedback. Cause you know what, Adam, all I want you to do is get better. Oh, do you? <laughs> this is going to be one of the biggest setbacks of the week. You know, it would always be dressed up as I'm a massive fan or yeah. I love what you do. Yeah. And it's like, here it comes. Yeah. And tip the manure on me. I I remember the funniest one I ever got was, you know, where I did that Bodyline documentary and there was this guy uh, on Twitter who goes, the more that documentary went on, the more I hated Adam Swire. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, yeah, I, I stopped, you know, dabbling in those dark arts a long time ago. I had a Twitter spat with a, a reviewer, which is, you know, a stupid thing to do. 
you know, there's one person in an audience, but they actually have a review that's in a paper. And I entered into a, uh, a dialogue and then it became a thing. And then there was a pile on, which weirdly, Adam, is, you know, if you're at the centre of a Twitter pylon, it kind of takes your breath away at how vicious yeah. and bloody-minded people can be. Yeah. But even if they're saying the most heinous thing about you, the little megalomaniacal fiend inside is still happy that you're being piled on. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, they, they're calling me a fucking piece of shit, but at, at least they're talking about me. <laughs> I'm scrolling through this stuff too. You know, it was like scroll, 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 no, no end to it. And I just kept scrolling and then stopped it. And the guy's name was there and he put down uh, his workplace. So, uh, and he said, you know, don't know who this guy is. Just looked him up on YouTube. He's an ass hat or something like that. So I rang his workplace. And uh, I asked for it. And uh, the guy said, uh, he goes, I'm sorry, what's this about? And I said, oh, it's a personal thing. He goes, oh, who's calling? I said, I prefer not to say. He goes, because let's call the guy David. He goes, because David works for me, but it's only me and him here. So he's just popped out for lunch. And I just said to him, can you leave a message for him? And he said, yeah, okay, sure. I said, tell him the guy from Twitter call. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, what? And I said, just tell him that. And he goes, yeah, I don't think so, mate. <laughs> but inevitably, if it's yeah. a two-man workplace, yeah. he's going to come back and he's going to go, listen, there was a phone call. And the Twitter. guy said, the guy from Twitter called. <laughs> I love it, Moon. I love it. <laughs> I just, you know, you're a man of my own heart. <laughs> just, just taking that little extra step further, just go, yeah. oh, oh, he's left his workplace. That's, well, that's. That's silly. Here we go. But now I'm, I'm off that. I just like, you know, if you want to become discontented, even if you're at the top of your game and you've just, you know, signed a big contract and you're with your perfect partner and you're in the best real estate, go on to Instagram and You'll be down in the dumps in no time. Yeah, you'll be. Yeah, it's it's so humbling the whole thing. And ABC ABC Facebook page is a cesspit. <laughs> and I know what a cesspit is because I'm in a holiday house that has a septic tank, and <laughs> if that overflows, I've got to take the cap off. And I know exactly what a cesspit is, and that is a perfect description because those people are turds bobbing around in a tank. Yeah. They, they, <laughs> if they get left to instructions what to do if, if the whole thing implodes. Oh, look. The, um, the holiday house. Yeah. It's basically, it's so close to the coast on the south coast that they, I used to work with a drainage company, so I'm kind of across it, but they're not, it's not a gravel pit drain off. So basically, your septic drains into a wastewater, and if the wastewater gets too high, I there's a lot of people here taking showers and whatever, then it can overflow. Oh, so okay. and and then you get a shit geyser inside your house, which is the opposite of civilization. Like one of the first things the Romans did was make sure that all that stuff drained away out of your house. So when that comes up, it's like, okay, 
we're back to the dark ages. Well done, everyone. Good on you for long showering. You know, <laughs> this is this is pre the Crusades. What we're going through here. <laughs> we're walking through our own shit. Well done for putting us in a time machine. Get out of the fucking shower. <laughs> that is that would stress me out for the duration of the holiday. Yeah, um, it can't help but stress you out, and has done humanity until that problem was solved. Yeah, it's a very particular thing. That yeah. <laughs> Oh, you got to applaud the Romans. I mean, you know, aqueducts, viaducts, and and sewerage and drainage was, yeah. you know, okay, f- fuck a horse, but yeah, yeah let let's get rid of the human animals. Bro, is good priorities. Um, question three: What is the failure you most cherish? The failure you most cherish is the one that gives you the best anecdote. Mm-hmm. I reckon. Yes. Well, there's, there's a couple actually, because um, I was thinking about this question. There's some that change you, turn you in a different direction because you've got to, in this business particularly, you've got to embrace your limitations. Mm. There's nothing, there's nothing romantic about failure. Uh, it's just failure. Mm. It's abject and suck and deeply hurtful. So probably at a pivotal point in drums school, I went for an audition for the TV series, Man from Snowy River. Yes. And rather than just learning the lines and delivering, you know, thinking about the character and what he was going on, I spent too long walking a mime horse. (laughs) (laughs) Do you know what I mean? I do. You know, just go in there. It doesn't matter about the scene is he walks his horse horse up and ties it to the bar. Don't mime that shit if you're an actor. Go in, do the lines. Oh, can we see you with the mime horse? No, fuck that. I want to do the lines and I'm going to give you the mood. But anyway, I was even doing a bit of clip-clop, clip-clop, and then trying to do the lines. It's like, no, mate. Forget the fucking mime horse. Or when you go for an ad, they go, oh, pretend you're catching a ball. No, no, no. That's pretty, yeah. You know, so... But I failed so dismally. I got <laughs> way ahead of myself emotionally. You remember, you'll know the great Lou Mitchell, one of the greatest yes. directors in the business. Such a beautiful bedside manner. Yes. Just really soft with actors. Go back and do it again, Lawrence. And, you know, let's let's lose the horse this time. <laughs> and then the heat of embarrassment had just engulfed me. I was sweating. I was all over the joint. I couldn't remember the lines. Um, <laughs> you know, the actor working opposite me, giving me the other lines. It was just a clusterfuck. That's the title of your autobiography, mate. Let's lose the horse. <laughs> <laughs> Let's lose the horse. Um, oh, that's brilliant, buddy. Anyway, at that point, I just started doing stand-up and I thought, stand-up. There was a bit of a fork in the road. Yeah. And I went, I've taken stand-up. I'm having a better time doing it. It's, it's easier for me. Learning lines in the hell of auditions, which I still go through. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I've still, fucking, I've still got the horse. I still do a bit of, you know, mime phone. It's like, mate, <laughs> stop pretending shit's there. You're not on set just... Do the lines with the, you know, attendant emotion 
and they'll be able to see it. <laughs> it happens to the yeah. best of us, mate. It happens to the best of us. <laughs> oh, fuck. Lose, Lawrence, just let's lose the horse because I'm sure the horse was changing height too. The reins were up here. It became a draft horse. It'd be a Shetland pony. It'd be a quarter horse. Okay, mate. We get a real good picture of the horse. And the other, the other one, the, 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 the best failure I've ever had, or I'm sorry, what was the question? Oh, the one you most cherish. The one you most cherish, yes. I did the um, Swan Hill Footy Club. Uh, it's the best heckle I've ever had. Um, I was filling in for my friend, Matthew Hardy, who's uh, he couldn't attend the gig, author of Saturday Afternoon Fever. Friend of the podcast. Friend of the podcast. Great man. Uh, a beautiful man, in fact. And yes. um, he said, I can't do this gig, Mooney. Um, it's in Swan Hill. I know it's a drive, but they're going to, you know, you do 40 minutes. It's an easy gig. It's a smoke morning, what they call a smoker. Basically, it's the end of the footy club. Everyone pays 50 bucks. You can drink as much as you want, and there's a comedian and strippers. <laughs> so I roll up. They've been there since 9.30. It's about 11 when I roll up, and the joint is the drunkest I've ever seen a mass of people, oh a couple God. of hundred blokes, and there's the level of drunkenness because drink as much as you can for 50 bucks. Anyway, the president goes, you ready to go on? Uh, and there's topless waitresses handing out trays of cans and those waitresses are then going to become strippers. They've got these two large fruit packing crates uh, with electrical ties banded together with cardboard on top, comfortable for the girls. I get up on there, the sound system shit out, but before I get up, the president introduces me thus. Uh, G'day, boys. Thanks for coming to our 20th annual smoke-up. Um, the comedian we organised couldn't be here because he's mum's crook. <laughs> but, um, here's Mr. Lawrence, and he introduces me as oh. David Bowie's character from Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence. It's like, no, my name's Lawrence Mooney, not Mr. Lawrence. Anyway, I get up and I can't get traction with the crowd. I start, there's nothing. They're too drunk. I'm just not getting anything. And uh, try a few jokes. All of a sudden, I'm getting ahead of myself, getting the dry mouth, getting the back sweats, thinking I can't do 40 minutes. I'm barely at the end of five minutes and these guys just aren't listening. So I'm doing a bit of crowd work. So, mate, you know, what do you do? It's like, fuck off and blah, blah. Anyway, and then, Zwari, I get the best heckle of my career from the back of the room. Somebody yells out, I wish your mum was crook. Oh, Oh, fuck. <laughs> and at that moment, I wish she was too. <laughs> <laughs> oh, mate. And did you get through it? What happened? No, I I pulled out 15 minutes in. <laughs> yeah. To the door, almost breathless, like running out of a bad dream. <laughs> and the president goes, you're meant to do 40 minutes. And I went, yeah, nearly 20. Got out in the car park, smoked it up and just got out of there. And Then they didn't want to pay me the full money and there was a negotiation went on. Oh, fuck, mate. And it's like someone, you know, as accomplished as you can have those kind of days. And it's like, you know, I mean, obviously Chris Rock talks about it. It's just yeah. part of the deal. Yeah, it's going to happen sometime. And uh, 
you just hope they're, they're few and far between or a one-off. Yeah. Footy club Sunday morning, 11 o'clock, and they've been drinking for an hour and a half. Yeah. God. Oh, mate, intense. In fact, that guy, he, the president wrote a letter to the guy who'd organised the gig, and he said, I'm refusing to pay this bloke. Uh, he wasn't funny at any time. He didn't do his 40 minutes. In fact, the only person that laughed was one of the girls and she was meant to be working. <laughs> like, oh, you are. So hello to all the good burgers of um, Swan Hill. It's a, it's a beautiful area. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the footy club, the Swans of Swan Hill and of the Steam Club, I'm sorry I let you down. I can be <laughs> man enough to say it was probably my fault. Oh, heavens. Um, if you could go back five years, what advice would you give yourself? I reckon it's always been the same advice. Just relax. It's mm. going to be okay. You know, we can get really highly strung about little things that aren't going our way. Uh, you always think your current gig is your last one. Yeah. And so you intend to fuss over it too much. And, you know, once you start pulling at the threads of a jumper, yeah, pretty soon you're going to end up with a pile of wool. So just, just relax. So five years ago was 2017. Um, had a great year, you know, doing, did a great show for the comedy festival called Like Literally. Um, I was doing radio gigs, had TV stuff going on. You know, life's sweet and, but you, you know, I don't know who said it, but all men lead a life of quiet desperation. Mm. There's always this kind of desperate edge to you thinking, am I doing enough? What's going to happen next? What if nothing happens next? You know, you spook yourself and all of a sudden you're jumping at shadows. So it's always the same thing. It's just relax, enjoy. It's going to be okay. I wonder if it, you know, like I've done a lot of, when I wrote my book last year, I, I realised um I've been suffering anxiety all my life. I didn't. Yes. I, it's interesting when you discover that, isn't it? I, in a way, it was a relief. Yeah. Because I just thought enough good things will happen in my life. I'll, I'll no longer have to deal with that. No, no, that's my mental condition. And right. um, and so now I I acknowledge it and embrace it, and you know, and it. I, I'm. Well, able how to, did you? How did you come to a diagnosis? Just when I was writing, going through my whole life, and just just uh, remembering everything or right, remembering yeah. as much as I could and writing about it. And so going on a deep dive and I went, Oh, I'm an anxious person. You know? <laughs> right. Um, and I don't know if it's a chicken or the egg with us, you know, it's like whether you're an anxious person, you go into show business or whether show business makes you anxious. I don't know. Probably. Pro I was probably always anxious actually. Look, and also when I say that bit of advice that, you know, I say it's always the same, just relax, enjoy, everything's going to be okay. There's also an element to us where we need to be anxious in order to make sure that the job's done right. 100%, mate. And you need to, that anxiety to push you forward too. Because if I was as sage as the Dalai Lama and really started to get into, you know, um, complete sense of enlightenment, the first thing I'd do is walk away from fucking showbiz. <laughs> <laughs> because I wouldn't need it. I wouldn't need it, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't need it to fill the void that exists inside me. No, no. It's like that that bit where um Jim Carrey comes out at the Golden Globes and he, he said, you know, I'm two-time Golden Globe 
award winner, Jim Carrey. I am two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey. You know, when I go to sleep at night, I'm not just a guy going to sleep. I'm two-time Golden Globe winner, Jim Carrey going to get some well-needed shut-eye. And when I dream, I don't just dream any old dream. No, sir. I dream about being three-time Golden Globe winning actor Jim Carrey. Because then I would be enough. It would finally be true. And I could stop this, this terrible search. Like, <laughs> you'll never be enough. Not not none of us are en- enough. If if if, if yeah. <laughs> we're seeking to be enough via show business, you know it's a fool's errand. Think about it. You, you've I've seen you getting standing ovations and all the love that one mm. person could possibly get. And then how long does that last? A couple of hours? Maybe maybe till the next morning. Well, you never want the buzz to end, so you <laughs> oh. take a couple of lines and start drinking martinis in order to. And that is a fool's errand because no, mate, that applause is over. The best thing you can do is, you know, go and get an ice bath like you've just come off the court and nourish yourself, not poison yourself in order to stay awake. It's such a high, I guess, you you know. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, you, it is a huge adrenaline high. And the, I, I noticed this thing um, when I was going to footy clubs to do uh, comedy. Um, I started to notice this pattern of behaviour, but it's whenever I do comedy, it's just that when you're on going to a footy club, you're on your own a lot more, mm. you're driving there. I'd become really quite sad. Uh, I'd become morose. I'd start to reflect on the failure of my first marriage, the fact that my daughter grew up uh, having breakfast with another man and not me. I think about my mum living on her own. I'd go into the most morose corners of my life and it was actually my psyche preparing me to go on stage and really, you know, hit it out of the park. So I, I was driving myself into this darkness. So when I got there, it's like, right, I've, I'm not leaving here like that. I'm going to kill this. So you go on stage, smash it, and I'd be coming out the other side. And I described it to Lou enough that she said, it's a thing you do to yourself. Yeah. You drive yourself into the depths of a depression in order to not not fuck up the gig. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, mate. You don't want to live with another dark thought, so you're not going to do this wrong. And when you come out the other side, all you want to do is just see all of the women naked, take all of the drugs, <laughs> yeah. get blind and stay awake for a thousand hours. <laughs> Mate, it, you've just described the condition. It's it, the, the torture, you know, the torture you put yourself through to just be a professional. Like the, the, the tension I'll go through to, to actually punch out a screenplay. I mean, it's oh. the agony you put yourself through or the, or, or what, your, your friend Colin Friels would I know he puts himself through torture to, before he goes on stage. I, I don't I don't think that the uh, you know 
the person in the street gets how much we actually bully ourselves and fuck I reckon up, if you know. you're you know a band for veteran affairs you're not sitting on the train from Mon Albert pushing yourself into that same <laughs> desperate preparation no. you know you can bowl through the door and have a cuppa Yes. And get your footy tips on in and off Thursday, <laughs> and maybe have a long lunch Friday. Yeah, the, I guess you know the, it's the it's the oversensitivity. It's as you mentioned before, it's the, it's the void within. It's all those things that drive us into the silly career that that, that we think is going to provide medicine for us. <laughs> but then there's those moments of absolute glory where you know the screenplay you've written not only comes to fruition, but gets critical acclaim in a second series. Mm, yeah. And nothing can give you that kind of, that, that um, fulfilment of actually creating. Yeah. It's, it's a life we, we can't do without. Yeah. That, that's what I miss. You know, you, we talk about not living in Melbourne anymore, but I do miss the, the, you know, the brothers and sisters that we have, you know, in, in show business because we kind of we can tell war stories and you need um that you know encouragement to be buoyed along this you know flat mm. periods where you're just thinking oh, what's the fucking point and you need people yeah. to go and it's good old back slapping where people go you know what sorry you're really brilliant at what you do you you know you should do another series you know and it kind of like helps to motivate you get you back to work get you kind of head right lawrence and i acknowledge the silliness of talking about show business as if it were on a par with saving lives for us i think the conversation is more about the psychology of what drives people to be part of the business and how to maintain your mental health over the course of a career moving on to question five what about lawrence's job keeps him awake at night relevance beautiful beautiful in a word you know you're you're nothing as a comedian unless you're relevant. In fact, what you are is irrelevant. And so it's the thing that haunts, I suppose, everybody, regardless of what strain of the arts they're in. But you can feel it, you know, as you age, you fear that, um, you know, are you becoming irrelevant because of age? Have you lost your audience? Have you lost your touch? All that stuff. And then... The other side of that coin, which is one of the uh, keys to life, is knowing when to let go. Oh uh, yeah, you can't you can't hang on. That that showbiz desperation becomes just tragic. You know, sometimes it can become like a, a reinvention, if you like. When you know William Shatner did. Um, did he do Stairway to Heaven? Uh, or, had, or um, yeah, he did a, a spoken word of a big... Oh, that's pop. right. Yes, he did. Yeah. Yes. Shatner was famous for his spoken word interpretations of quite a few songs, including Lucy in the Sky with Diamonds and Mr. Tambourine Man. But the most iconic was Shatner's version of Elton John's Rocket Man. And it was like, oh, God, Captain Kirk, that's tragic. But then... He became this reinvention, almost a parody of himself, and then Boston Legal came up next, and he was a new William Shatner. And now, yes. you know, he, he just went to Mars on Bezos's rocket, and uh, he's this yeah. kind of god. So it's about pivoting and about reinventing yourself, but also, like, kind of 
in a way, you've got to let go in order to find what's next. You know, Tarzan had to let go of the vine and fly through the air before he could keep swinging on the next vine. That's an analogy I've just come up with. So it's pretty shit, but. <laughs> Mate, I, you, it, it, it hit me. I, I love it. it. But it's it's exactly right. It, it's um It's something that, that haunts us all. I, I think, you know, if you pass 45 and you're not worried about that, then you will be worried about it soon. Um, but also, and- you're, you are living an illusion and, and reality is going to hit you like a semi coming out of the darkness. Yeah. But, yeah, I think the word for that question, and, God, it's a brutal word, relevance. <laughs> because, you know, a lot of comedians or a lot of the questions that are posited to comedians these days is, oh, it must be difficult to be a comedian because of, you know, all of the correctness that's going on and political correctness and the cancel culture and all that sort of stuff. Well, no, it's not. Comedy has always been a very fast-moving medium. And so if you don't adapt, then you're not relevant, i.e., if you go out in front of an audience and do a joke that the audience doesn't want to hear, they won't laugh. And so your material needs to change you need to remain funny. And so the audience will dictate to you what's funny and what's not. And so we evolve very quickly. So cancel culture doesn't bother me and political correctness. And we've always moved very quickly with the times because you're either funny or you're not. It's also why comedy dates so quickly. The heartbreaking reality is that many of the sitcoms I used to worship I now cringe at because I'm watching them through a different lens. Moving on to question six. What's an obstacle Lawrence has had to overcome? I reckon procrastination is probably one of the biggest obstacles I've had to overcome. And in fact, Zwari, I went to a hypnotist to overcome procrastination. It's a true story. And so there's this, uh, this hypnotist called... Rowan Gazard, and he was a comedian. And then he started doing, you know, a comedy hypnotism where you get eight people up on stage and, you know, four of them would end up there and you turn one into a chicken and one into a one into Michael Jackson and then you'd have two having an argument with one another. Um, and I ran into him at a party and uh, I said, you know, so, uh, Rowan, are you still doing hypnotist shows? He goes, actually, I've gone into clinical hypnotism and he said, majority of it's, you know, smoking or weight loss. And uh, I said, is it, are you successful? He goes, almost every time successful. He said, because the person who's coming to me has already decided. So I'm just deepening the neural pathway or basically his explanation is bringing the alpha brainwaves forward to tell this person to do what they've already decided to do. So if you go to a hypnotist to give up smoking, you've given up smoking. And so he said, why don't you come along and get hypnotised? And I said, for what? And he goes, well, what's your problem? Which is a really good question. Uh, I said, my problem is procrastination. He said, well, get rid of it. Anyway, whether it's, you know, auto-suggestion, placebo effect, whatever it was, for the next year, I did not procrastinate at all. What was the kind of results of that? The, the results of that were um, uh, 2010 into 2011, I wrote this comedy festival show. I sat down and, like, wrote a proper comedy festival show rather than having a collection of jokes that I'd then, you know, basically attached to a theme. Yep. Um, I was doing um, 
the match committee with Sam Pang That's right. and John Oroglasso every Monday night. And what came out of that was Ernie Kane. Ernie Kane was the character Lawrence played in the series Kane and Disabled, which screened on ABC in the lead up to the 2012 Paralympics. After that, Lawrence, Sam Pang, Stephanie Branch, and myself hosted the Paralympics for ABC2. The, basically, the power of that productive year where I didn't procrastinate at all. And he gave me some really effective tools too. It's like, tell yourself you're going to work and, you know, you're going to work. And so I had this productive 12 months to 18 months where my career and my creativity was my primary thing. I got off the piss for six of those months. I just worked my ass off and I put it all down to Rowan Gazard hypnotist that's brilliant and it was, by the way that 2010 was when we first did agony uncles yes so it, was, it was all that period wow yeah and do you know what even if it wasn't even if you know it wasn't just stopping procrastination it was prioritizing and i went along for two sessions and you know i was worried i wouldn't go under anyway boom off to sleep deep sleep and then he'd wake me up and say the session's over and it's like was I snoring? You said you were fast asleep. I've been hypnotizing you while you're in your sleep. I said, you could have told me to do anything. He said, yes, I could have, but I've, I've told you to stop procrastinating. Anyway, went out of there, felt amazing. And, and he talked about these alpha brainwaves, which apparently is a, is a fact when we, you know, when you're writing, your most powerful period is first out of bed, get yourself yeah. a coffee, get a shower, you got two or three hours and then your creativity runs out. It's the same with an animal. Bang, they're running first thing in the morning. They, they hunt and then the rest of the day is eat, sleep into the evening. You see a lion take down an impala on a David Attenborough documentary, it's 9.25. You've got to do it early. Lawrence credits hypnosis for inspiring the most productive period of his life, and he says he's keen to go under again. I would, you know, any obstacle you got, I would, I would highly recommend hypnotism. I'm a very suggestible person. I'm probably the person most likely from my, you know, peer group to join a cult. Um, <laughs> I'm very suggestible, but I reckon hypnotism works big time. I'm suggestible as well, but laziness protects me from joining a cult. Question seven, what word or phrase does Lawrence overuse? Probably, oh, this is bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> and it applies to, it applies to um, traffic, mostly queuing kind of things, boarding a plane. Mind you, I'm just desperate to board another plane. I, I don't mind if I have the queue. You know, general waiting, checkouts, people people stopping in doorways, or, or the news. If you know the news is on, it's like oh, for fuck's sake, either for fuck's sake or this. Is yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, why I, over you? I've had friends say I'm a fucking hell, fucking hell. Yeah. <laughs> um, that's and most very of the funny. time, most of the time, it's self-referential. Where right. I, I'm starting to become impatient it's like oh fuck this is bullshit you know my behavior or my thought process is bullshit as much as the situation <laughs> and you can see that like you've got this kind of third eye looking at you yeah just yeah 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 oh, right. fuck grow up 
yeah, yeah. I, yeah. But it's I'm, I'm the same. But I love that bit on Agony Uncles where you talked about uh, when you've been in business class or first class and then having to go back to economy and you go, I don't deserve to be here. I don't want to sit next to anyone in an economy because I'd love to just travel business or first class. Because <laughs> once you have, gee, it's hard to go back. Once you've done business and you push back into economy, you just go, I belong here. There's been a terrible mistake. I should be up in business. I love it up there. I got used to it. I'm too good for this. You can't do this to me. Don't you know who I am? That's right. I'm with Moon. It's difficult for a traveller to briefly sample first or business class and then to be thrown back to economy. A University of Toronto study found that passengers were 2.1 times more likely to have an outburst if they had to walk through the first and business class cabins on the way to their economy seat. This is opposed to boarding in the middle of the plane when they're led directly to the economy section. The study found that seeing the first and business class sections created a sense of deprivation and inequality in passages, which made them more likely to act out. So I guess that leads nicely to question seven. How does Lawrence remain calm under pressure? Often I don't. Uh, but um, No, I don't. <laughs> I, I just don't. I don't remain calm under pressure. Overrated, overrated, mate. Yeah, calm under pressure. Um, If I'm on stage and it's not going the way you anticipated it, like, you know, if you're you're doing a festival show or your own show and the laugh wasn't there at that particular point in the show where it was last night, then you know you've got a different audience on your hands, which you have every night, so you've got to change it up. So you change the pace. Sometimes you change the material. Sometimes you take a flight of fancy, but I'm... I've never come under pressure. I suppose um, the best way to stay calm is doing. I'm not. I'm not very good at not doing. Yeah. So, yeah, get the job done. That's you know that good. the self help book. Don't sweat the small stuff. Yeah, sweat the small stuff. Sweat all of the small stuff and make sure it's done. So when the big stuff happens, like a death or an injury or a birth or a, you know something, you're ready for it. Yeah, make sure that. Make sure your bills are paid and you I'm, I'm a bit Jordan Peterson like that. Yeah. Get up, make your bed, go and exercise, have a breakfast, clean yourself and get ready. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. That's how I stay calm under pressure. I make sure that, you know, I've got some money in the bank and uh, all the chores are done. Yeah, yeah. probably the, the, there's a load of washing on and the dishwasher's going. Yeah, that's lovely. Yeah, I mean, that's the big thing. If I've let myself down on the way to whatever event I'm doing, you know, if I've let myself down in some way in the preparation stakes, that's when I get nervous. Uh, if I've done all the work, well, what else can you do? Yeah, you know? do the work. That's a yeah. that's a good way. So it's not about calming yourself um, whilst the pressure is mounting or whilst you're having an anxiety attack or you're you know sweating. Make sure that the work is done, and then you'll have a pleasant life. Yeah, that's and, lovely. And, and stopping procrastinating, to hark back to an earlier point, really helped that. I had a, you know, a pretty comfy life in those two years where things were just great. Um, and then, uh, you know, even they say that a woman, you know, won't nest until, she, you know, all the elements are right. Well, at the end of that kind of really 
great period, my wife got pregnant. Lou got pregnant. Wow. And she, and so I reckon it's as a result of all of that, you know, she's calm enough. She obviously sees this guy's, you know, the, 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 the nest builder, the breadwinner, the, the partner, and all the, you know, biological ducks are in a row. She, she pushed me on a bed in, in Noosa and uh, said, I want you to make me pregnant. Yeah. Mate, that's brilliant. Yeah, she said, I want to have a baby. And, that, and I remember that particular sex was, was it. Oh, mate, that is amazing. Yeah, women can't, women can't trust guys that, you know, you know, part of the commitment thing is committing to yourself as well. Like, you know, committing to your job, believing and providing. It's, it's all pretty, you know, we're animals. Yeah. Yeah. No, and at that period, so that was, um, and that's right, because you were, she was pregnant 11, in 2012. She was pregnant in 12, yeah, when yeah. we went to the Paralympics. That's right. That story left me a little tongue-tied, so I'll spare you my umming and ahhing and move straight to question nine. What is Lawrence's career high and low? Career high was, uh, and this came off the back of Agony Uncles, um, was, and all of that period was being offered my own show on the ABC, yeah. Dirty Laundry Live. And the three seasons of that were an absolute career high. Thursday nights, working beside Brooke Satchwell, who's an absolute star. Yeah. Marty Sheargold, who's a comic genius, working yep. with Peter Lawler, who's, you know, one of the most well-regarded or celebrated producers in the country, all off the back of the wonderful Kirsty Bradmore having enough faith in us to give us our own live show during the Paralympics. Um, there was another wonderful woman whose name eludes me, Jenny. Remember, she was the head of um, that department. Oh, Jen, Jen, Jen Collins. Yeah, so Jen Collins's faith too, and then given Dirty Laundry Live, which was you know scuttled by a new broom sweeping clean. Yep. Tragically, and they've had a go at that, that similar format a couple of times. So yeah, career high, absolutely. Live Thursday nights, then you know you'd get off air, and it was like a sporting victory, Zwari. You'd go into the green room, and people were just chugging beers and cheering because yeah. the adrenaline was pumping. Um, oh, yeah, yeah. I had the pleasure of doing it once. Yeah. Clearly, Lawrence didn't remember one of the greatest nights of my life, so I reminded him of the story I told about interviewing Orlando Bloom. Adam, <laughs> you actually met Orlando Bloom? I did meet Orlando Bloom. I interviewed him once, and uh, we, we share a birthday. And I thought, oh, that's good. I'll have that in my back pocket if the interview goes bad. And the interview did go bad. We really, I really had no connection with him. I said, oh, Orlando, you, you might not know this, but we actually share the same birthday. And, Lawrence, if you're going to show me a face that gave less of a fuck. And they're going to be laughing. That was early on in the show, and then I felt comfortable from then on in. It was great. I had a great time. So, yeah. To, to give it a cricketing parallel, you're off the mark. Dirty Laundry Live ran for three seasons and 44 episodes. Moving on to Lawrence's career low. Do you know, when Dirty Laundry Live wasn't uh, renewed, it was a bit of a career low, but you know how these things come in clusters. Mm. So that year, I'd also written Moon Man with uh, a friend of mine, Scott Taylor, for 
ABC initiative that they called um, Comedy Showcase. Oh, yeah. Or Comedy Showroom. Anyway, so there were six um, commissions given out for people to write a pilot. Uh, Ronnie Chang, his one got commissioned. Um, and the letdown, very close to the lowdown, but the letdown with a yeah. um, oh, wonderful actress whose uh, name Al- is... Alison Bell. Yeah. Uh, the letdown with Alison Bell got commissioned. And so uh, I was fine with not getting commissioned, but it, then it just became a bit of a... a uh, a cluster didn't get renewed for Dirty Laundry Live. Didn't get commissioned for Moon Man. There was a a pilot that I did for Channel Seven that um, was meant to be like a a late night news chat show along the lines of what Clive Robertson used to do. Oh wow! Um, with me and a guest would come on for the night, uh, and I'd talk about some of the big stories of the night with them. So Great idea that pilot was green-lighted, we were away, and then what happened at Channel 7 was the CEO, Tim Warner, was embroiled in a controversy. <laughs> That's right. With somebody else from the network, and he, had, he, he was the one that loved this idea, and so everything that had been commissioned was put on hold. And, and then the final kick in the balls came with I was asked to do One Flew Over the Cooker's Nest with Nadine Garner, who I'm a massive fan of, Yeah, playing R.P. McMurphy. Oh, my God. uh, The famous role made, well, the role made famous by Jack Nicholson in the movie. And we were going into rehearsals and the funding fell over. And I I thought, have I fucking walked over somebody's grave here? What is going on? And that was for a, that was during a very short space of time. So that was that was the end of 2016. Oh, and then and then you picked yourself up. Like in 2017, you started getting radio, full time yeah, radio. And 2017 stuff. Yeah. had a great year. And those things, you know, sometimes you just want to wallow in your own misery for a bit. Uh, it's you know, it's not like a pathological thing. It's just like you're suffering a melancholy, and it's like everyone hates me. Yeah. And wants to kick me in the nuts. And it takes your partner to go, all right, enough of the self-sympathy now. You've told enough people that story. Move on. (laughs) But sometimes wallowing, (laughs) it feels good. Oh, yeah, mate. I'm addicted to it. You know, licking your own wounds. It's like, yeah, no, it's not fair. (laughs) My career lows, I've got to say, have been brief. But when they come, you know, the, the pain's quite intense. Let's yeah. go. Let's go with a kick in the genitals analogy. Like you're tied in a star formation to a wall, and people are lining up. <laughs> From my perspective, Lawrence will always be a going concern because his talent's undeniable. But that doesn't make him any less anxious. I think it was Leonard Cohen saying, "There's a part of the brain that dies off, uh, and it's attached to anxiety, and it just wow. slowly." withers away like the rest of you but thankfully you know that stuff dies as well but you know when you're a young bull and you you want it all we used to have this joke in the stand-up world uh how long can you go hearing somebody else talk about their 
current project without saying, how'd you get that? (laughs) (laughs) I've actually said those exact words. I know who I said it to, and I'm going to apologise. Well, it comes from desperation, but how long can you you enjoy somebody else's success? Uh, How'd you get that? (laughs) Oh, mate, final question. Do you have a motto? I do have a bit of a motto, uh, and that is, it's it's going to be fine. And I think that the part of that is, you know, being raised as a Catholic, being raised as a tribal Catholic. You know, it's going to be okay in the end. It's like your this, you know, manifest destiny. Whatever's going to happen, uh, it's going to be fine because basically, it's got to be. You've got to accept whatever happens to you. And, yeah, it's going to be fine. That's lovely. Sometimes, except sometimes it's not. <laughs> That's exactly- <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to 10 Questions. If you'd like to subscribe to us on Patreon, we're at 10 Questions with Adam Zwa. And that's where you can get the bonus content on every interview. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Thank you.